Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are great. There is no one else in the universe like you. And we praise you that you, have, you call us your children. So we pray tonight that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to understand from your word, fill us with your Holy Spirit once again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for you to try to imagine something with me tonight. Imagine going to your mailbox tomorrow afternoon. There's a big fat letter in there, and you look at it at the return address, and you say, I wonder who this is from. And it says, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Well, that's what the pastor at Ephesus found one day, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, is a letter from Jesus Christ himself to the church at Ephesus. He actually wrote to seven letters in what we call Asia Minor. Ephesus was one of those seven, and it's the first one that we see in the book of Revelation. We're going to introduce this letter by looking at a few verses in the chapter 1. In verse 9, it, said, it says, I, John both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So to the seven churches in Asia and to every Christian down through the ages who would ever read this word, he says, I am both your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. If you added that up, he said, I am both your brother and companion in three things. In tribulation, only God knows the suffering that the Apostle John must have gone through to be a preacher of the gospel and an apostle. Only God knows the tribulation and suffering that has been experienced by millions of Christians over the years who have confessed his name. John says, I am your companion in that tribulation. You know, in our own church... We have brothers and sisters in our church who are going through trials even tonight as we speak. Some of them are health problems. Some of them are problems with their loved ones. Some couples are having marital problems. But like John, you and I need to do something. We need to be companions with them in their troubles and trials. That's part of being in the body of Christ. Then he says, not only am I your companion and brother in tribulation, but I'm your companion and brother in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you thought about this lately or not, but you and I are companions in a kingdom, the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Gentiles. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of the kingdom of God, and he is our king. He also says that I am your brother and companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. What is the patience he's talking about? Well, the Bible teaches us that patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, it says that uh, 
the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And long-suffering there can be translated patience. So we are in, John is our companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. Do you remember one of the parables Jesus gave? He said, some of the seed fell on good ground and are those who, having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, the patience that God gives us is the kind that helps us to wait when it's not easy to wait. I know for a fact that some of you are going through trials and you're having to wait upon the Lord. But let's be like John was and let's be like Isaiah was, our brother from ancient times. John learned, like Isaiah, that you gain strength when you wait upon God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, it says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, John, as a suffering apostle, could have complained about his circumstances. He could have said something like this. Lord, I've been a faithful apostle. I've suffered many things for you. I've suffered many things in the name of Christ and for the gospel, and you stick me out on this forsaken little piece of land out here in an island called Patmos. Now, instead of complaining, though, what did he do? Well, verse 10 of chapter 1 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, why was John suffering out there on that island? Why was he in the Spirit on the Lord's day? I don't know for sure, but I have an idea. I have an idea that the reason John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day is because he was in the Spirit every day, and including the Lord's Day. He was like Paul who said, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we meet on this coming Sunday, are we going to be in the Spirit? When we come together on Wednesdays and other times, whether in small groups or larger groups, are we in the Spirit? Now, being in the Spirit, verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. When you're in the Spirit, you hear the Lord. And that's what John heard. And this is what the voice said. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then verse 12 says that John turned to see the voice that spoke with him, and he saw seven golden lampstands. And verse 13 says, and in their midst, one like the Son of Man. And verse 16 says that he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Do you remember when Paul was stopped by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus? He was not an apostle at that time, but he said that there a light appeared to me brighter than the noonday sun. Have you ever looked at the sun at noontime? It's pretty bright, isn't it? Well, when Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul, he was brighter than the noonday sun. So he said, I saw his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And then in verse 
20, Jesus said, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 1, Jesus identifies the person to whom he is writing. He's not identifying himself just yet. He's identifying to whom he is writing. He says in the first part of verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now, notice the addressee is the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, do you mean to tell me that Jesus is writing to a heavenly angel? Did Jesus give this letter to an angel in heaven and ask him to take it to another angel in heaven? I don't think so. The word angel can be translated a couple of different ways, and one of those ways is messenger. There are heavenly messengers, and there are earthly messengers. It's clear to me that Jesus is speaking about an earthly messenger, the earthly messenger of the church at Ephesus. I believe very strongly he's talking about the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now, I've been a pastor a long time, 50 years to be exact, and over the years I've received a lot of letters. But what would it be like to get a letter from Jesus Christ. That's what happened to the pastor at Ephesus. Can you imagine, maybe the administrative pastor like Bill went in to see the pastor at Ephesus and said, Pastor, I've got a letter here. And he said, well, who's, just put it in the, the box there. He said, who's it from? He said, it's from Jesus. He said, what? It's from Jesus. This letter is not only to the pastor of the church, as it turns out, it's to the church in care of the pastor. Notice it's addressed to the pastor, but he speaks to the whole church. When you think about it, this Bible that we hand out every, every time we meet together, the Bible that you have and that you love is really letters written to you by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the letter is to us. The Bible is to us. It's about us. It is for us. It's about our present. It's about our future. God wants his people, you and me, to take the Bible personally like he wrote it to you and me, because he did. Now, God's love for his people is from everlasting to everlasting, and he's written the Bible to tell us about it. In this case, he's written to one of his churches, the church at Ephesus. As we consider this letter in the, in the moments that follow, let's consider the fact that it's also written to Calvary Chapel, Santa Cruz. Would you look at it that way, please? Now let's look at Jesus identify himself. He's identified, first of all, the pastor of the church at Ephesus and the church. Now, in the scriptures, the Lord Jesus could identify himself with many titles. Think of the titles and names of Jesus. We don't have time to think of them all. There are many of them, but here's just a few. He is called the great I Am. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Word of God. He is the Savior of mankind. He is the King of kings. And He is the Lord of lords. You know, the old hymn says, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And He's just the same as His lovely name. That's the reason why I love Him so. Because Jesus is the sweetest name I know. In Philippians 2 Beginning at verse 9, it says that God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
In this case, he chooses to identify himself not by one of his names, but listen how he does that. In the latter part of verse 1, he says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now the stars are the pastors of the churches. In other words, Jesus says, I am the one who holds the pastors of the churches in my right hand, and I am the one who walks among the churches. The lampstands are the churches. So I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In other words, I walk amongst the churches. Can you think about that? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in their midst. So we welcome you tonight, Lord Jesus, because he is here. Now, this is his church, and when we're together, he comes too. Think about it. Calvary Chapel belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't he say, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst? We should never forget that the person who's in charge of this church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches who forget that are in peril of going out of business, as we're going to see in a few minutes. And now Jesus Christ commends the Ephesian church for seven things. Let's look at them. Verse 2. I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Let's look at those one at a time. He says, I know your works. Now, works are something that's been accomplished in the past. In other words, he says, you have accomplished things for me in the church at Ephesus. Then he says, I know your labor. Now, this is work that is continuing, is going on. So they continue to work, and he knew about it. He says, I want you to know I know your labor. Then he says, I know your patience. I know that when the going gets tough that you're willing to wait on me. Then he says, I know that you have tried those who are evil. You can't stand those who are evil. And, you, and you've tried those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. And you have persevered. You don't allow obstacles to keep you from serving me. And you have not become weary. In other words, when you're tired, you just keep on going. Isn't it fantastic when you think about it that Jesus knows every little thing that we do for him? Remember, he said, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of water... In my name, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. You know, even if there's not one human being that knows the things that you do or appreciates the work that you do for Christ, just remember this. Jesus is the one who says, I know your works. So, brothers and sisters, let us let our recognition come from the King of Kings. I think David told you this story. I can't remember for sure, but you're going to hear it again. This is a true story about a missionary who was overseas for over 40 years for the kingdom of God. He and his, his precious wife and children. The time came that he couldn't do it anymore, so he had to retire. He sent his wife and family on up ahead, and he boarded a ship. It was in the early 1900s. He boarded a ship and was on his way back to New York. Well, as he began to approach the harbor in New York, he heard a band playing, 
and a crowd, the noise of a crowd. Well, he didn't realize it, but he was on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was being met by armed people, by soldiers, by Navy, by brass, by all kind of people, a band and so on, and a large crowd. And he thought for a moment that that was maybe people from his church and people from his town who were coming to welcome him home. When he got there, he realized his mistake. But he felt kind of bad that nobody, when he came down the gangplank, his wife was not there. Nobody from his church was there. No one from his town was there. And he began to feel kind of sorry for himself. Well, he didn't realize it, but his, the letter that he had sent his wife hadn't gotten there. She didn't know the day he was coming home. That's the reason she wasn't there. That's the reason none of his church members were there. That's the reason no one from his town was there. Well, he thought, well, at least maybe they'll be when I get to the town. So he got on the train in New York and went some distance away. And when he got to the train station, there was still nobody there. So now he's beginning to get a little upset that no one's there to meet him. So he gets in a horse and buggy carriage and rides some miles out to his country home. And it's dark and all the lights are out. His wife is not even there. The lights aren't on. And he goes up to the door and he doesn't realize it, but she's spending the night with some neighbors thinking he's coming next week. So he goes in his house and he throws his bag down. He walks back to his bedroom. He falls on his knees by the bed. And he said, Lord, I've been faithful to you all these years. And nobody was there even to meet me when I got home. And then all of a sudden he heard a voice in his heart. And the voice said, son, you're not home yet. Now think about it. We're all going home Sunday. And we're not going to hear maybe our wives or somebody else, but we're going to hear someone else say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he's going to say, enter into the joy of your Lord. You think about that. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I know that one of the people hurting here tonight is Debbie, her dad died recently. But guess where he is now? He's in the, he has entered into the joy of his Lord. He's jumping up and down. So that's why the Bible says that we are to, uh, it tells us to weep for ourselves. Don't weep for those who's gone on before. So Jesus recognized the works of the people in Ephesus. He says, I know your works. But he found out there was something very wrong with that church. And he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In other words, they had lost that intense, enthusiastic love for Jesus Christ. There was a time when they loved the Lord with a great intensity and devotion, but evidently they no longer had that intense love. Now, nothing is more important in the life of an individual or the life of a church, or the life of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, as to whether or not we have our first love. What is the greatest commandment? A scribe asked Jesus that one day. He said, Lord, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He said a second one like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jesus knows something that maybe we have forgotten. He knows that when we love him above all loves, that all of our work for him will not seem like work at all. It'll seem like a joy and a privilege. Let me ask you a question, dear brothers and sisters. Is your devotion to the Lord Jesus a joy or is it a chore? Have you gotten tired doing it? If it has become a chore, Perhaps you've left your first love. I want to tell you a true story about two young women 
in New England long ago who worked in a cotton mill. They were friends, but when one of them quit working at the mill, they lost touch with each other. Years passed, and one day in their little town, they passed each other on the street. The, the girl was, one girl was still working at the cotton mill, and she said, How are you doing? Are you still working? And she said, No, I'm not. I got married. When that girl worked in the mill, she watched the clock. Every evening when 5 o'clock came, she had her coat on and was on her way out. It was hard work, and she didn't like it. Now she is married, and she says she has quit working. Now, if you could look at this young woman, you wouldn't think that she had quit working. She gets up early every day to prepare breakfast for her husband, to pack his lunch, to throw his, her arms around him and tell him goodbye. And all day long, she's busy cleaning the house, washing clothes, and caring for her two little children, who she thinks are angels because they're hers. Then when 5 o'clock comes, she doesn't put on her coat and leave like a flash. She starts cooking dinner. About 6 o'clock, here comes her husband. She's right there at the door to throw her arms around him and tell him how much she missed him that day. Now, his day is just about done, but hers is just getting good and started. She serves dinner to her husband, then she feeds the children. She washes the dishes. She puts the children to bed, which is a chore in itself. And she works getting things ready for her husband the next day. This young woman is bone-tired and weary, and she finally gets in bed. But she's not working anymore, she says. Why? Because this woman is in love. That's why. That's the difference. She loves her husband and her children so much that all her work seems like nothing at all. You know, there's a lesson here for us. Jesus is teaching us the lesson of first love. If we love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, whatever work we do for him will seem not like work at all. You remember the question that Jesus asked Peter three times? He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And only then did Jesus say, feed my sheep. It seems to me that Jesus is saying, if you don't love me, Peter, don't even bother feeding my sheep. How serious was it for the church to leave their first love? How bad was it in his eyes? Jesus answers that question in verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what does he mean by that, I will remove the lampstand? Well, didn't he say that the lampstand was the church? The lampstand was the church. So if he removes the lampstand, it means that he removes the church. The church goes out of existence. And it should. If the church stops loving the Lord with all their heart and soul, it shouldn't be in business, should it? How many churches across this land aren't in business anymore today because they stopped loving the Lord the way they should? Let us never make that mistake. He says, remember from where you have fallen, repent. In other words, turn back the pages of your memory and think about the time, perhaps long ago, when you loved the Lord more than anything or anyone else in the world. Repent and return back to that first love. Return to the love that was as intense as it used to be. He said, and do the first works. In other words, return to 
me the way you loved me in the past. And if you don't do it, I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place and I will do it quickly unless you repent. It's really something when Jesus no longer recognizes the church as a church. He literally doesn't meet there anymore and the church just goes through the motions and in many cases they don't even realize he's not there anymore. Now they didn't have to Jesus didn't have to take this drastic action if they would just repent. All they had to do was obey what he told them to do. He says in verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now think about the way he ends this letter. He ends it in verse 6 and 7 to the church at Ephesus. He's commending them for something good they had done. He just told them they had left their first love and they needed to repent. Now he tells them something good as he closes. He wants to close the letter on a positive note. He tells them to repent, but then he says he commends them. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I don't propose to tell you I know the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are a real question mark in church history. Many scholars have studied this and have opinions about it. I have an opinion, but I'm not sure I'm right. Whatever We know this, though, that whatever their beliefs and actions were, they were so despicable that Jesus said he hated their deeds. We should hate the things that Jesus hates. You know, as I was writing this down in my notes, I said, for instance, how would Jesus have voted on Proposition 8? I think we know, don't we? If he hates certain things, we should hate them too. Jesus ends the letter by commending them for something good they had done. It seems to me that Jesus is saying, the lines of communication are still open. If you will repent of leaving your first love, we are back in fellowship again. And he seems to repeat that idea with verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear, do we have listening ears tonight to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church? All of us should ask ourselves the following questions Lord, how am I personally doing? Am I listening to you with my whole heart? Have I left my first love? Do I still love you with all my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength? Was there a time in my past when I love you more than I do this minute? If I don't love you the way I used to, please forgive me and help me get back to my first love to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together. As we sing our worship song before we leave, I hope and pray that you will ask those questions to yourself. If I don't love you the way I used to, please forgive me and help me get back to my first love for you. Pray that prayer as you sing the song.